Let's pay attention to this. Uh, it's uh, from chapter 20, and I'm going to be reading from uh, 1 to 17, then uh, somebody's going to read the rest of that. So let's concentrate on God's word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. We're continuing in Exodus chapter 24, commencing at verse 1. The covenant confirmed. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua 
And Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning, and welcome again if you're visiting Canterbury Gardens, uh, and also hello to those of you who are you watching on YouTube, probably just my sister, so g'day. Um, so uh, firstly, John, Ruth, thank you for reading that. Um, if you're someone who's exploring the Christian faith, welcome to Canterbury. We pray that whether if you're someone who's been away from the church for a long time, uh, coming back, or just maybe someone brought you along this Sunday morning, we pray that God will continue to stir your heart, and we pray that's already been happening. Uh, as a church, we've been going through the book of Exodus, an Old Testament book, uh, and if you don't know this, we do have a YouTube channel. You can actually look at all our sermons on there. There's a podcast uh, as well that you can download, sermon or go to the website if you wish. Last week, Cameron Purse, uh, our young adults pastor, he did an amazing job in sort of, I would say, dipping our toes into the start of the section that we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, last week, uh, Cam uh, challenged us to consider, particularly in the text, that the very covenant that God has made between Israel and its people is known as a conditional covenant, main, meaning that it was based on whether they lived this out or not. It was expected of them. And he also asked us to consider three things. One, do we trust that ultimately God has provided a great mediator in Christ, that we understand that we've been brought near to the great and mighty holy God, through Christ, that we obey God, not out of just duty, but because out of love. Now, this morning, what I want us to consider is three things, friends. I want us to consider God's heart, our need, and God's provision. God's heart, our need, and God's provision. Would you join with me in prayer? Great is the Lord. Great is his holy name. Praise him all the earth. Father, we bow before your throne of grace this morning, and you know our hearts. And we pray, wherever we are at, that you would speak to us through your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would change hearts, change wills, change my own. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be glorified in all these things today. In your name, for your glory. Amen. Uh, so we're going to be looking at this idea of God's heart firstly. Now, I don't know if you've had this conversation around your dining table, or maybe if it's kept you up all night. Have you ever wondered, what would you do if a person digs a hole and your ox or donkey falls into it? What are you obliged to? I'm sure it's kept you up at night. What do you do when someone 
that, that you know says, uh, you say to them, hey, can you look after my donkey or my ox or sheep or using our day in terms, your goldfish or your dog? And as they look after them, they happen to die or they get injured. Have you ever thought, what do I do? What, what does God expect of me? Or have you ever wondered, what's the best way to cook a goat? I'm sure you thought about that, right? Lots of dinner conversations right there. If you need a goat curry recipe, come and see me. It's, I've got a good one. Now, friends, I, I joke about this, but look, this is God's Word. It's true. It's relevant for us today. And particularly for those of you who are exploring the Christian faith, you might think, this sounds a bit strange and weird. Yeah, sure, in our context it does. But these things actually happened. Uh, these things are actually true. Uh, these commands that we hear, and particularly in the Bible, you hear language like law, commandments, statutes. Uh, they, they may cause all of us to land in a few different places. Some of us might say, well, actually it's Old Testament. I'm a New Testament person. not really relevant, you know. Some of us may look at it and go, look, yep, some of this is true and probably relevant today. And some of us, I know I've grown up in circles where all of this still applies. Now, I understand that may be one way to look at it, but I want us to consider something perhaps first. Why? What's the purpose of these law and commandments? Another way to put it, what's God's heart for the words that are in front of you that the people of Israel heard for the very first time as Moses gave these commandments? Firstly, we need to understand it was there to display to the people then, the people of Israel, what it means to be the people of God. In Exodus 21, chapter 20, verse 1 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Uh, we've been saying this throughout our Exodus series, that they have been rescued from slavery. They belong to God. They're His people. And out of slavery, they're under his loving authority and rule, and also his kingship. And as his children, the expectation is they are to live under his commands and laws. It's a dual thing going on here. What it means is that it not only means that if they live under his commands and laws, well, it will go well for them. But also it is to display to the nations around them, including the nation they got rescued from, that they are God's people. Now, it's good to consider when we talk about words like laws, commands, statutes, there may be a few things going on in our own minds and hearts. So just to give you a bit of a brief overview. Firstly, when we think about law, commands and statutes, uh, they're actually talked about in very different ways. There are quite a different laws, several kinds of law in particular. What it best way to describe it is it's like in three sort of types of law. Firstly, what you've just heard in the passage that was read to you, that's known as the moral law. This is ultimately summarized by the Ten Commandments. It is both eternal and righteous. It's the standard of relationship that we have with God of the universe and with others and around us. There was also known for the people of Israel what's known as the civil law. These are laws that consisted of the laws that governed Israel as a nation under God under the God of the Bible. So there's rules about waging war, land use, and what happens if you break a legal code. Then there was also what's known as the ceremonial laws. These are religious festivals about clean and unclean food. It's about offering sacrifices, ritual purity. It's very detailed. If you want to really get into the details of it, 
read the book of Leviticus. So when we talk about Ten Commandments and laws, it's good to know what we're talking about here. Now, in verses 1 to 17, and even in 20 to 26, what we're seeing displayed beautifully, it is the very heart of God that has been displayed to all to see. Now, if someone asks you, as you're kind of unpacking this passage, maybe you've already read it beforehand, someone asks you, what matters to God in these chapters that are outlined for the people of Israel? What would you say? Is it ultimately just simply about, well, just do it, just, just live it out? See, what's going on here, friends, is God is revealing his heart. God is revealing his heart to the people of Israel, saying, I have called you to be my people. And what is at the heart of it? It's about worship. It's about worship. It's about displaying an allegiance and worship and reminding themselves who they belong to, the God of the Bible. Uh, now, the language here is very strong. And what, when God says in verse 3 that you shall have no other gods, and in verse 5, he displays clearly the reason why. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God is making it very clear. This is not a suggested option. This is what is expected of you. And if you disobey this, the consequences is not just on you, but it will continue for generations beyond you. If you don't obey this, if you don't keep this, consequences are really bad. And if you do, the blessings are wonderful. As one commentator put it, it's up here on the scene, God demands absolute allegiance to the exclusion of all other deities. All other deities. See, God, in effect, was saying to Israel, any time that they turn their face from the true and living God, they're going to remember that God himself is right there in that moment because he's always there. And their disobedience is in the very presence of the God of the Bible. And when we see this picture that's shown before us, it's revealing God's very heart. This language of zealous. Uh, your translation might have something like, God is jealous. Now, I just want to clarify a few things, and you might be wondering, uh, God doesn't have some sort of low self-esteem issue. Uh, he's not sitting there and going, oh, I really wish Israel would really love me. That's not what God's talking about. What it's showing is his very nature, that he is a God who is zealous and jealous in that in, he's displaying that he wants to also show and love Israel and say, if you love me, if you worship me, this will be good for you. It shows his protection over them. But he's also zealous about his honor and glory. And he's saying, I'm intertwined with your life. You can't keep me separate. I'm involved in every aspect of your life. And the very disobedience will have consequences. Now, you may already know about this, and I don't know, but in, in these verses, in verse 5, you could go to a few different places, but at the heart of it, what God is saying 
Israel, listen up. And in particular, those of you are the heads of the home. Fathers, listen up. Pass on your faith onto the next generation. Teach them they are to be committed to them as I am committed to them. Hand down what is required of them. That's a powerful saying. Actually, throughout the Old Testament, there's this repetition. Pass it on to the next generation, to the next generation. And particularly in this context here, it's the head of the households. But see, what happens is if they don't pass it on, they're also actually passing on something totally opposite. They're passing on a bad example. They're ultimately passing on the guilt of sin as well. Now, in the Old Testament, this is covenant language. There's, uh, there's so much in there. But what we're seeing is God displaying His heart. This is the kind of relationship He has with His people. Now, I don't know if you saw the language, how strong it was. Who's the punishment for? In verse 5, it's reserved for the fathers, the fourth and generation of their kids. Who? Hate God. It's like saying the fathers pass on their hate of God onto their children, and the consequences is God's judgment on them. It's a domino effect. The fathers hate God, and the next generations also hate God uh, much more if, than their fathers. So God is punishing them for their sin and ultimately for their hate of Him. Now, as much as there's this powerful language of judgment, in the mix of it is also God's grace. It once again shows his heart, his very characters in the mix of all of this. But in the midst of the wrath, there's also justice and there's compassion. In verse 6, he states, he shows about this idea of a faithful covenant, love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. I don't know if you saw the order that the way it's written What we're seeing is God's very gracious heart. His steadfast love ultimately overwhelms his judgment. I mean, the very promise is absolutely beautifully powerful. The very blessing, how long does it last? It doesn't just last for three or four generations, but for a thousand. It's a way of saying forever. Now, friends, this is nothing new. This didn't just all of a sudden show up in Exodus. This is the language that God spoke in Genesis 17 to Abraham, where he spoke of an everlasting covenant. What God desires, though, I don't know if you saw the language that he speaks of, what does he want? He wants their heart. What does he say? Those who love me. If you and I want to know what God's heart is, Friends, I'm just going to pray for a moment. My heart's a little bit distracted. So would you join with me in prayer? Father in heaven, uh, I don't want to distract my brothers and sisters here. Holy Spirit, I pray uh, by your grace, enable me to rely on you, not on myself. In Jesus' name, amen. Sorry about that. Now, if you want to know what God's heart is, what he's displaying here, his very beautiful, glorious heart for his people. What he's wanting is a life that displays 
an, uh, um, an allegiance to Him in every aspect of your life. Not just on some days, not just even on Sunday itself. But we know through the story of the Bible and the story of Israel, and even in the very book that we're studying in Exodus, what would happen is the opposite. And Israel would feel their consequences, and it was horrendous. I mean, in the first few verses, it reveals God's heart, but it also shows the constant threat and temptation that's there for all of us. That is, to love something or someone else more than God. That's what worship is about. See, look, um, idol worship is not something of the past. Idol worship is not something that's reserved for just those of us who go to cross-cultural mission or something. I mean, the very second commandment here reveals the spiritual reality of what idol worship is about. It is something that seeps into our heart. You and I, myself included, are tempted to create our own idols and ultimately shape them in our own image. The very act of creating an idol is like trying to shape and form a God to our liking and our design. It's like saying, we will be God. And you know what, God? Let's determine who you are. Let's put you in a box. Let's create a God that suits you and me. Even today, you and I are all tempted to shape a God that suits our desires. And that plays out in various different ways, doesn't it? Uh, sometimes we're tempted to emphasize things about God that we like and minimize others. We may speak much about his loving attributes and his grace, and we ought to. But we may struggle to talk about his justice and wrath. And there are those of us who love talking about his justice and wrath. But we hardly talk about his love and grace. I know I'm tempted. I don't know about you. Friends, uh, if you're someone who's exploring the Christian faith, I want you to know you are designed to be a worshiper. You, you've shaped ultimately a God that suits your own belief system, your own lifestyle, and perhaps your own wants. In, your, in short, the biblical language is you're saying to the God of the Bible, I hate you. And friends, those of us who know the God of the Bible... We may say that we love God, and that's wonderful. But the question is, when we obey God, are we doing it out of fear, out of duty, or out of love? Now, here are some other questions for us to consider. This is something a friend of mine challenged me about to think about. He said to me, Shabu, what do you think about the most? In that moment when things are quiet, and that moment in the morning, in the day or night, what's the first thing that comes to mind? What is that thing that brings you great joy? Or maybe even robs you of joy? What is the thing that you shape your life around? What are those attributes of God, Shabu, that you struggle to talk about? Perhaps even in your heart, if someone really asked you, do you really believe that? Now, there's lots of ways that this could turn out. Here's an example of what this could look like. I love my three kids. I love hanging out with them. I love being their dad. 
But if my kids become the center of my universe, where everything that they do, I dictate my life all around them alone, at the cost of my relationship with God, what I'm doing is I'm elevating them to a place that does not belong to them. What will happen is either I will crush them with that pressure, or they will grow up believing life revolves around them. Dear friends, they don't need encouragement in that. (laughs) Or maybe there are those of us uh, who go to work, uh, maybe you're into investment portfolios and all those things, great, well done. You may work, you may save, you may invest wisely, you might even actually be really generous. But if that thing becomes something that you dream about, you think about, you pray alone about, at the cost of your relationship with God, either it will rule you or it will, you'll never be content. See, if we look at also these commands that are there of do's and don'ts alone, and we don't actually live this out because of our love for God, Either if we see them as do's and don'ts alone, we'll all automatically think, yeah, I'm doing pretty good this week. I've done this, tick, tick, tick. And then what will we do? We'll look at those people who aren't doing it right. Well, then there are those of us who will think, oh, this sounds so hard. I don't know if I can actually do this. And you're constantly condemning yourself. Or the, the commandments itself, we say, well, I like this one, maybe I'll move this one around, and you know, this sounds a bit too old, I'll put this one away on the shelf. In particular, the Ten Commandments that are in front of us is what theologians call the moral laws. They've actually not changed. Yet, both in the life of Israel and today, either they're being twisted around and turned to become this heavy, heavy laborsome list of do's and don'ts, or we shape them or take things out to ultimately please what suits our lifestyle. And it then ultimately becomes just a checklist. And we end up missing the very heart of God, what God wants. The question always through the Bible has always been and always will be, will you worship Him and love Him exclusively? God desires that for all of us. He desires our heart, and that's his very heart. And see, if we just do what Israel did, which was they ultimately made this into rules and regulations, they kept on adding more to it, actually, ultimately. This very picture of God says, not having any God before you, this very language of not having carved images, if they truly lived this out, what would happen is they wouldn't worship any other God. They would be exclusive to God alone. That they wouldn't make carved images of any kind. They wouldn't bow down to anything. That they wouldn't take the name of the Lord in vain. That the very Sabbath that was created for them for a purpose, they would continue to use properly as God intended. They would honor their father and mother. That they would not murder. They would not commit adultery. They would not steal. They would not bear false witness. They would not covet. This is the picture that's given if they actually put God first and loved Him and out of that lived for Him exclusively. See, God's design, since the very beginning of the Bible, He created man. He created man and woman in His very image. So there's so much beautiful, glorious theology going on in here that the very purpose of humans were what? 
to reflect God, to reflect God's glory. This part of this commandment is not to make God in that you don't make God as an image. We don't do that. God actually has his own image. You don't create something else to represent God. Another way to put it, the theologian Christopher Wright puts it much better way than I'm trying right now. He puts it this way. The only legitimate image of God is the image of God created in his own likeness. The living, thinking, working, speaking, breathing, relating human being. Not even a statue will do that. Only a human person. We are not allowed to make God's image, but only be God's image. It's at the very heart of God right here. Friends, I hope you sense the heaviness of this. That's been really challenging for me this past week. The God of the Bible is beautifully and gloriously desiring and he's zealous, even today, for our allegiance and worship him alone. And as this passage describes, (laughs) Israel ultimately could not do this. And as this passage describes, we would all be lost if it wasn't for his steadfast love. See, what this whole commandment throughout the Bible reveals is that we have a need. Now, I don't know about you, how many of you have read chapters 21 to 23 before you came here? Probably not, because we probably, oh, oh, we've got one, great. How many of you would think chapters 21 to 23 is a real good quiet time material? Now, let's be honest. There are those of us who read these sort of Old Testament passages, we go, oh, I'll just skip that, you know, as the real thing. But there's a reason for it, because it's God's Word. We need to understand this is God shaping a nation to reflect what God's heart is. And he even goes into the very details that he does in in chapters 21 to 23. It's fascinating what God is doing. He's not only revealing who he is, he's revealing the very ethics of who he is. As you read these chapters, it should move and stir you to what it shows. It shows, firstly, God is saying, love me. Now he's displaying this is what it means to love others. It's an outward focus. It reveals the full picture of what happens when God is not actually honored and ultimately life becomes self-focused. The fruit is life-centeredness. What God is trying to say is, if you keep me center, then your life should be other-centered. And in chapters 21 to 23, you've got things about slaves and uh, striking to stealing to cursing to fighting to ox goring, animal being injured. There's lots of ox talk in these chapters. There's livestock and lending and there's even seduction and there's sorcery there's how do you deal with migrants how do you deal with the fatherless the widows what do you do with false reports there's uh, what happens when you pervert justice there's how do you serve the poor what do you do with the um, sabbath laws and festivals and what's fascinating about all of this is it's confronting what i love about god and he shows in his heart He assumes that the people of Israel will need this. He doesn't assume they'll be totally fine. He assumes the worst. 
In this moment, what we're seeing is God knows that they will require this. God knows they are a nation and they're living people around them. The reality is this, that sin is still there in the hearts of Israel and its people. See, this set of commandments are there at the heart of it. It it is centered around others. It's looking away to serve others. It reveals also the depth of God's heart again. It shows who he is. He speaks to them about them being sojourners and how he's rescued them. And this is how you should treat sojourners. He talks about the poor and the fatherless. In the midst of this, we're seeing God also says that when something is broken, there's a demand for justice. He can't just sort of look over it. There's consequences for it. But it's also it's an overwhelming fact. This, re- this reveals to us there is a need for judgment. There's a need for boundaries. There's a need for God saying, this is what it means to live with the holy God. Many years ago, uh, many years ago, I had the joy to go to India and visit my family. And I got into the car with one of my uncles. As I got in the car and as he drove, I literally thought I was going to see Jesus that day. <laughs> the way he drove was as though he had been watching some sort of, playing some sort of F1 game on his computer and he decided to live it out. Now, hear this, right? There's actually speed limits in India, believe it or not. And most of the time, they think they're recommendations. Now, I know we laugh, and, you know, I laughed, you know, in India, but don't we do that here? We see the very laws that God has placed for us, the government's placed for us. We go, oh, that's recommendations. The reason why there are laws, courts, penalties, judgment, it's because you and I live in a broken world. We live in a sin-filled world. The very chapters here show this, that Israel lived in a sin-filled world. Their very hearts were prone to that. And God knows this. Actually, he assumes it. So this is why it reveals not only their need, it reveals our need. We need a God who is holy, who is just, who sets the boundaries for us. But it also reveals the impact of sin in this world. See, at the breaking of this committing, the breaking of this means that there's, uh, there's justice, there's demand of justice by God himself. It reveals a need that we all have, that God must bring justice to sin. But it also defines for us, this is what it means to be having God the Lord of your life. What it means to be his people. That you don't just believe it, but actually you've got to live it out. It needs to be showed in your life. And we know in the people of Israel, they did not live this out perfectly. I don't know about you, I know, I do not live this out perfectly. We know even today, even the very systems that have been put in place in our own very nation and around the globe, set there for justice and right things, they've been twisted and corrupted for, to meet other people's needs. Did you know that there is slavery here in Kilsyth through sexual slavery that happens in our very own suburb? Slavery still exists. Did you know that there's still stealing and murder? There's mistreating of sojourners. 
for those who are tempted to live for excess and portfolios and accumulating ultimate wealth and security for themselves, what it's a reminder is we live in a sin-filled world. And there is a need for justice. Our need for true justice is still needed today. And God knows this. That's why it's a very striking image in Exodus 24, uh, verses 3 to 8. You have a look with me very quickly. So Moses gathers all the people, and he brings before them the very words of God, and he explains to them, this is what you should do. And what do they say in verse 3? All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. It's a powerful moment. It's like a revival going on. And so Moses, once again, goes through a bit of a ceremonial thing and reminds them what this means. And he takes the book of the covenant and reads it at the hearing of the people. And they all said what? All the Lord has spoken to, we will do. We will be obedient. You can just see it. And so they make a covenant. Now this is such a promise that we will be obedient in their cry out. This is covenant language. This is Bible language saying it's an agreement. If you don't agree with this, if you don't hold up this agreement, there's actually consequences for your actions. And we know throughout Israel's story... They would constantly mess this up. Over time, their laws and rituals would become meaningless, and it was displayed in the way that they worship God. The prophet Hosea would cry out God's heart in Hosea 6, 6-7, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, and knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. It reveals the very heart was prone to constantly, ultimately say, God, our allegiance is for ourselves, to something and someone else. It's not for you. And we rather love ourselves. You know what? (laughs) This is the story of all of us, myself included. Whether you're someone who does not believe in the God of the Bible, or you are a committed follower of God, you and I have all been faithless perhaps even this week. This is why there's such a desperate need. And this is the truth for all of us, a need that only God himself can fulfill. I'm so glad it wasn't dependent on the people of Israel. I'm so glad it's not dependent on you and me. Praise God. It's dependent on who? God's steadfast love. Many years later, the Apostle Paul himself was a committed practicer of the law, was confronted with the good news of the gospel, and he would write this to the letter to the Romans. What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if I had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that I promised, life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So this is why the law is there. It's to remind you and I, we have sinned. All of us. You and I need rescuing. 
We are guilty before a holy and righteous God. And He alone can bring true justice on His terms, not on your terms or my terms. And He has beautifully and gloriously done that through Jesus, His Son. This is why there's a need for a better covenant. The Apostle Paul would actually write and say, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to who? God. In Christ Jesus. God sends his son, Jesus Christ. The one often was in conversations with the religious leaders at the time. One actually came and asked him in the Gospel of Matthew, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends the law and the prophets. He summarizes beautifully. Says, love God, love others. You can't do one without the other. If you do, it won't be fully lived out. And Jesus, throughout the Gospel of Matthew in particular, would unpack this even more. What's known as the Sermon on the Mount series, where he's preaching, he says in Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law, until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one at the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And who has done that? Whose righteousness exceeds that? Really, Christ. He alone has done this. He has fulfilled this 100% what was required. The one who was perfectly committed all of his earthly life to bring glory to the Father, even to the very cross as he was crucified. The one who was focused every day of his life to do the Father's will, not his own. The one who revealed the Father, his Father's name, and never, ever misused it. The one who is the Lord of the Sabbath, because only in him can you and I find true rest. The one who loved his father perfectly and was obedient. The one who did not murder, but in that moment when he is murdered for your sin and my sin, turns around and says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. The one who is ferociously committed 100% to his bride, the church. The one who does not steal but gives life. The one whose words are true and right and perfect every time. The one who did not covet but submitted to the Father's will. It's beautifully displayed and fulfilled in Christ. It reveals that you and I still need a saviour. Jesus is the one who was willing to do that 100% fully perfect, who died, who was raised again. And friends, this is a truth that you and I still need today, whether for someone who is exploring or someone who believes in Christ. 
And if you don't know Christ, I want you to know you cannot attain or reach God by keeping these laws alone. You won't. You need Jesus Christ. We would invite you to turn to him. And if you do know him, and I would encourage you to unpack the Sermon of the Mount and read that, it reveals this, what some people call this upside-down kingdom. That if he dwells in your heart, if you put your faith in him, it's not just about now saying, okay, I'll wait for Jesus' return. No, it reshapes everything in your life. Your whole life is devoted and committed to living for him. But praise God, not in our own effort but in his way and his power. The Old Testament prophet would write, he he has written his law in our hearts and minds. And this is only possible through the Holy Spirit because of Christ's work. This means it's all of God's grace through the power of his Spirit, called to live for him. You know what this means? If you're someone who's exploring the Christian faith again, I want you to know being a good person will not make you right with a holy God. So we'd invite you to come, explore, seek, ask questions to the friend that brought you this morning. And those of us who are followers of Christ and maybe sit in a few different ranges, for those of us who are the law-abiding Christian, for whatever reason, you believe in the gospel, now you've landed still on the do's and don'ts. You've got the basic reality of the why. Maybe God desires more about you to be worshipping him out of love, not just doing things. Reminding yourself of that grace that he's shown you. Maybe that grace is also what you need to extend to those who keep dropping the ball. And for those of us who constantly are condemning yourself continuously over and over again and how terrible you are, how terrible you are, yes, We've all dropped the wall. I have too. But if you are in Christ, there's no longer any condemnation. Because God sees you through his son. This means this is going to be a lifelong journey for you and I. As we grow in our love for him. The more we grow in our love for him, that means the things of this world, by God's grace, will seem as total rubbish. It's a long journey. And you know what? You might not actually fully realize it till your final breath. For those of us who think that God's law, some of these aspects, particularly the ones we read at the start, does not apply to you, the call to love him and others are still true today. Do you know that how you love others displays how you worship God? Maybe there are places you and I have compromised on that. We invite you to look to our Savior again. Ivana earlier shared about in the communion focus of this moment of hearing uh, the, the cousin who had passed away and, and sharing about that story of how he'd come to know the Lord. Friends, I know that's a story for many of you where God just invaded and totally changed your family history. But I want you to know that job hasn't just stopped. If you're a father, a mother, a mum, and a mum, or a dad, or an uncle, or an auntie, or a nephew, or a niece, you, if you believe in Christ, you have this great responsibility to continue to proclaim this love of Christ to the generations right next to you. 
So God's heart is for us to confess our love for him exclusively alone. He is zealous for you, my dear friends. And he's done so and shown that through Jesus Christ. We, you and I still need our Savior today. And maybe that means today, this morning, you need to recommit in your heart what he's calling you to do. Would you join with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we come before you and we bow at your feet. We ask for the things that, anything that we've committed, whether this week in our own hearts, that we're worshipping something or someone else more than you. Help us, Lord. Forgive us, Lord. For those of us who are exploring the Christian faith, Reveal to us the reality of what it means to be worshipping you alone. For those of us who know you, remind us of your grace again through Christ. Help us to live for you this week, for your glory, in Jesus' name.